Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Pacers Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and this week we are discussing seizures with our resident neurology registrar, Dr. Hamish Morrison. This was the perfect follow-up to our recent episode on collapses as we talked through the key differentiating elements of a history which would be more suggestive of a seizure than a collapse from another cause. Not only that, we discussed some important aspects of managing seizures, including important advice to give our patients, particularly relating to lifestyle, driving, and contraception and pregnancy. All of that is not to be missed in today's episode. I really hope you are enjoying the podcast as much as I love producing it. I'd be really grateful if wherever you're listening to this podcast, you take 30 seconds out of your day to give us a five-star review on whichever podcasting app you're using to listen to the show. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at prepacespodcast or email us at prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast, the only podcast that is sure to get your neurons firing on the way to success in the MRCP Paces. Today's episode is a follow-up to our last episode on collapses, where Dr. Ashley Nisbet and I discussed a patient who may have collapsed. And during that episode, we spoke very briefly about seizures as a possible differential diagnosis. And I said this. And sometimes patients can sense that they're going to have a seizure. But again, this isn't really your or my area of expertise in particular. And I'm sure we'll find a kind neurologist to come on and and talk to us about it. But well, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Hamish Morrison, a neurology registrar in the seven deanery who has kindly agreed to discuss seizures, which should have plenty of relevance both to PACES and to our own clinical practice. So thank you, Hamish, for joining us today. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on the show today. And Hamish, patients presenting with seizures is very common on the medical take, and there are many different causes of this presentation. So the plan for today will be to give our listeners a rundown of all the essential components of the history that you need to take and how to approach the assessment, investigation and management of these patients. And then towards the end, we'll be discussing some relevant examiner questions and important aspects that you'll be expected to mention during your presentation. So without much further ado, let's jump into seizures. 
So just before we get started, there's a few definitions I think we should get established so we're all starting from the same perspective. So Hamish, what's the difference between a convulsion, a seizure and epilepsy? Because they're all quite similar and can be used interchangeably, but they're also quite different as well, aren't they? Thanks, Sam. Yeah, I think that's a really sensible starting point. Um, these terms are often used interchangeably, but do mean different things. So to take them in turn, uh, convulsion, that's a generic term for irregular movements of the body caused by involuntary muscle contraction. A seizure describes abnormal excessive discharge of a set of neurons. Epilepsy defines a medical condition characterized by recurrent seizures. And in our last episode, we discussed a patient who suffers a collapse and the lead in to a PACES station or the written scenario may well be quite similar in that the patient has had a transient loss of consciousness with possibly some shaking noted on a paramedic handover or that's noted in the lead into the station. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed the typical presentation of a patient who suffered an episode like this. And we talked about how the differential diagnosis can be uh, neurally mediated, so something like a vasovagal episode. Um, it may be related to orthostatic hypertension, and we talked about cardiac collapses as well. Now, seizures can present in a similar way, and, and largely the history-taking structure is, is quite the same. That is focused around taking a history of before, during, and after the episode. So, Hamish, just run us through the important things we need to cover, both in patients and in clinical practice, that we need to ask when seeing these patients when they present with us with a suspected seizure. Thanks, Sam. So I, I think I think that's right. I'll I'll take each of those sections of the clinical history in turn. Important things to think about before the event. Well, I think you've got similar history taking principles to what you would have covered in the collapse episode. You need to get a clear understanding of the situation um, that they were in at the time. In this case, before the event can be divided into immediately before and the hours or days preceding the event, as this may reveal other reasons that they've had a seizure. Immediately before the event, think about prodromal symptoms. So vasovagal symptoms are lightheadedness, nausea, tunnel vision, sweating, and tinnitus. But it's in, in a patient who's had a seizure, the prodrome's often often quite different from that of a vasovagal, isn't it? So these, these are sort of quite important differentiating factors between the two presentations. Yes, I, th I think that's right. Uh, often patients who've had a vasovagal episode will have the typical symptoms I've just mentioned, whereas someone experiencing a seizure, if, if they do have prodromal symptoms, they may describe some quite unique symptoms, which may relate to the focal area of their epilepsy. The sort of things you, you might hear them describe might be positive phenomena, such as flashing lights or, or blurring of vision rather than dimming of vision. Some patients will describe a, a sense of uh, deja vu just before the seizure occurs. Olfactory and gustatory hallucinations, such as uh, funny smells and tastes, are also described and sometimes a, a sensory prodrome, so numbness or, or tingling in, in, in a limb or another area of the body. Those are things which sort of happen immediately prior to the event. And as, as Hamish has just said, the, the differentiating factors are, are clear that these positive phenomena are very different from the types of symptoms you would find in a patient who's had a vasovagal episode or, or a cardiac collapse. But, but asking about the days preceding the event can often um, provide uh, clues to the reason why they've had a seizure. And one adage I, um, I came across uh, was that people who experience seizures may develop epilepsy, but not everyone who has a seizure is epileptic. And there are, there are many different causes of a seizure which are unrelated to epilepsy. And um, so, Hamish, what sort of uh, other symptoms could we ask about which may indicate a, 
um, distinct etiology of, of a seizure. Yeah, that's a really good point, Sam. Yeah, and I think you know, what you're describing really is um, what we would call in neurology a provoked seizure, um, and particularly in someone without a history of seizures, so without a history suggestive of, of epilepsy. The sort of things that I would think about would be infective sources in this case, so maybe something specific to the CNS, such as um, um, uh, meningitis, so meningism, headache, fever, or it could be a more general infection in someone who perhaps got a, a more vulnerable brain, thinking of the, the elderly patient with dementia, perhaps. Electrolyte abnormalities, so a recent history of diarrhea or vomiting would be important. Drug use, thinking of uh, uh, illicit drugs and also alcohol, which can lower the seizure threshold. In terms of other possible triggers uh, that may either bring out seizures in someone with known epilepsy or in someone who's not had a seizure before, perhaps a new presentation of epilepsy, think of things such as uh, flashing lights, although that is less common than you think, um, sleep deprivation or perhaps stress. Often in a, a, an adolescent who perhaps is, you're seeing the, pre the first presentation of uh, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, we're often seeing these patients for the first time when they've um, moved to come to university. So they're in a new environment, having late nights uh, or drinking more alcohol. And that's uh, led to their presentation. Other common things I perhaps haven't mentioned, hyperglycemia, which uh, can in itself cause seizures and also can trigger seizures in someone with a preponderance for seizures. Thinking about other important things, um, new presentations of space-occupying lesions. So particularly if it, teasing out if there's any headache in the history, particularly a headache suggestive of raised intercranial pressure. So a headache which would worse on, on a supine posture, headache worse in the morning, perhaps associated with, with, uh, with vomiting or any other or focal neurological signs or symptoms. And as well, if there's been any recent history of head trauma, particularly in someone on uh, anticoagulants. Thanks, Hamish. I think this is really interesting because... Like you just said, a, a good example there of um, the example you gave of a, of a student who's gone to university and, and has a combination of factors which are sort of coming together to give an, an overwhelming um, preponderance for someone to have a seizure. So just in, in the context of PACES, you may not consider asking about those factors in a patient, in a young patient who's coming with a seizure, but actually you know, late nights and um, more drinking more alcohol than usual are, are really important to ask about in um in patients presenting with seizures. So yeah, really good example there of how um, a cluster of um, risk factors can come together. So that's covered sort of before the before the episode. So you've got immediately before the episode and then sort of the um, symptoms in the preceding days. And then what sort of things would you ask about during the procedure? And, and I guess this is difficult in paces because quite often you rely on a collateral history where a witness might not be available, but it's still important to ask them um, if anyone's told the patient what they saw as the patient was um, sort of mid-episode. So what sort of things would, would you ask them about that happened during the episode? Um, yeah, ab absolutely, Sam. Often, even though if someone really has had an epileptic seizure, they're unlikely to be able to give you a, a first-hand account of what they experienced, um, other than perhaps the prodrome. If the seizure has been witnessed, they're more than likely have been described um, or been told by um, a bystander what happened to them during the event, and they'll probably remember that description. In particular, things I want to you, you'd be interested to know about would be the would be the the, the the tone at the time of onset, particularly you know if they're described as going stiff or rigid rather than going sort of floppy and flaccid. So, in a patient who's had a, a vasovagal um, collapse or a seizure, there may be a description of shaking. Uh, however, usually if you, you can tease apart um, the brief twitching or shaking of the limbs, which you, which which uh, are common after a vasovagal episode, 
in comparison to the usually the the more uh, prolonged or sustained um, and rhythmical shaking seen in a tonic clonic seizure. One of the symptoms which we um which is often a matter of controversy in, in patients who've had a transient loss of consciousness is, is incontinence. And last episode, Dr. Nisbet said um, that urinary incontinence isn't that specific for seizure-like activity. But is there any sort of, well, first of all, do you agree with that? And then secondly, is there sort of any greater significance of fecal incontinence rather than urinary incontinence? Yeah, I think I, w- I would agree with that. I, I don't find... Uh, urinary incontinence in the history to be a great discriminator between an epileptic fit and another on another cause of collapse um i think i think it can be it can be present in both um there is said to be a, a greater um uh, significance or specificity for, for fecal incontinence than epileptic seizures but i would say generally we, we don't see it all that often in terms of other things that do help discriminate um tongue biting is is one of those things, and in particular, uh, a lateral tongue bite, we would see as quite a specific uh, marker for an epileptic seizure versus another cause of collapse. And on that note, anterior or sort of tip of the tongue bites are much less specific and quite common in, in, in all forms of collapse. So it's really the, a significant lateral tongue bite that you're looking for. Perfect. Yeah, tongue biting obviously a really good discriminator for um, for seizure seizure activity versus collapse. Yeah. And again, this is something which is probably more relevant in real life than in paces, but it's um, always important to ask about sort of immediate first aid and what was done at the time just to make sure, you know, they didn't have any sort of additional injuries. But in, in the context of paces, this is probably going to be um, quite quite unlikely to have any other, you know, significant injuries, um, given that, you know, you're going to be taking the history from the patient most likely. And then after the episode, and this this is largely one of the most characteristic discriminators between a seizure versus a collapse of other cause and that's a postictal state hamish would you agree with that yeah absolutely i think a true postictal phase is definitely a, a helpful discriminator if if you can obtain that history clearly that's very helpful in guiding you towards seizure one thing i would caveat this with is often someone can be a little confused uh, initially on coming around from another form of collapse uh, and that can be mistaken for being post the postictal phase, but typically, you know, the the confusion uh, and alter behaviour following a seizure will tend to last sort of several minutes or longer, perhaps in some patients, whereas the confusion um, or disorientation that occurs after a cardiogenic collapse is usually much briefer. You know, typically in someone who's had a, a generalised tonic-clonic seizure, um, there will usually be amnestic for also period of the postictal phase is as well as the prodromal phase, where someone who's had a, a cardiac uh, syncope perhaps will, will often be able to tell you almost exactly what was happening right up until the point of collapse. One, one additional uh, sign which can be seen following a, uh, following a seizure um, is that of tosparesis, which is a, a focal neurological weakness, which can last up to 48 hours following a seizure. Usually the patient will have a history of tosparesis, which is helpful in determining whether whether this is a post-seizure phenomena rather than something to concern you for um, uh, a new space occupying lesion. Perfect. And then um, thinking about, for example, in the history taking station rather than the, the station five, you might have slightly longer to probe really deeply into the rest of the elements of the history. So we're just going to go through those very briefly now. 
the past medical history of these patients, it's important to ask about a number of a number of sort of different things which would just elude or raise your um, suspicion for some of the differential diagnoses that Hamish mentioned earlier. What are, what are some of the things that you would want to ask about in the past medical history, Hamish, which might just direct you towards one of those differential diagnoses? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think I, th- I think that's really sensible. You know, yeah, I think if you're being, I mean, in terms of keeping it focused, so if someone does have a background of epilepsy, you'd be interested to know if if they've had any recent change in medication, what the medication compliance is like generally, and perhaps if they've if they've missed any recent doses, or or if they've had any exposure to triggers that they know lower their seizure threshold. In someone who doesn't necessarily have a history of epilepsy, pertinent questions would be establishing a background of cancer, particularly of malignancies which have a tendency to metastasize to the CNS. So um, breast cancer, um, uh, renal cell carcinoma would be two things I would definitely want to know about. Malignant melanoma also can cause metastases which are typically hemorrhagic uh, and can also lead to seizures. And also establishing whether there's any background of, of immunosuppression, which may perhaps predispose them to CNS infection, such as um, meningoencephalitis. Perfect. And then I guess in, in a family history, there's not a huge amount that's particularly specific to um epilepsy to, to ask about particularly in the family history um i i guess you could ask about about a family history of cancer but it's probably more more important to ask the patient if they've got any personal history of cancer and then um in the drug history there are some medications which can reduce the seizure threshold which i know that um, i've encountered sometimes on the medical takes so so the floxacin antibiotics so ciprofloxacin or moxifloxacin i think are the and biggest culprits of that and some antipsychotics um, such as clozapine can also lower the seizure threshold are there any others you can think of painish those are just the, the probably the two um sort of most prominent ones that i came across in, in my research uh yeah um i think that's right sam many the antidepressants sort of your ssri antidepressants have have uh, will come with a warning of theoretical risk of lowering seizure threshold um, and I only bring that up because that's something that we com- a question that we're, we're commonly asked because, of course, depression or anxiety are often comorbid with patients with epilepsy. And they're, so they're often either on both medications, both an anti-epileptic and an uh, antidepressant, or perhaps a GP is considering starting an antidepressant. And so they will often raise this question with us. Uh, in general, we, we don't see this as, a, as an issue in clinical practice, but it is just something to be aware of. And then... The social history in these patients is um, really important to um, ask about as well, Hamish. So particularly work and driving. And these things can be really difficult to discuss with the patients, can't they? Yeah, I think, you know, these are challenging discussions to have with patients, but they're probably, you know, among, among the most important thing that you're going to discuss either by the bedside on the acute medical unit or, or in the outpatient clinic. I mean, I'll take taking these points in turn. So, so, so dri- driving is a, is, a, is a major issue for patients who have either had a seizure, syncope, or who have epilepsy. It's, it's crucial to, to, be aware, to be aware of the driving regulations in this group of patients. As a medical professional, it's, it's your responsibility to um, be aware of the guidance and to be able to direct the patients towards the DVLA to, to seek absolute clarification. So broadly speaking, if, 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 if someone's got known epilepsy, they will not be able to drive uh, unless they are a, a year seizure-free. If someone um, has presented for the first time with a, with, with, a, with a first seizure, but doesn't have a history of epilepsy, so not a history of recurrent seizures, they, they will usually be um, have to refrain from driving for at least six months. The important thing is, is that the DVLA ultimately make this decision, not the patient and not you as a doctor. 
So your responsibility is is explaining the kind of the, the rationale, obviously, for uh, safety on the road in, in someone who's had a seizure, uh, why the rules are in place, but really just informing them that they need to not drive until they've notified the DVLA and been given further information. Yeah. And one thing that we, which we mentioned in the last episode as well is that although it's um, it's important that for the PACES exam for you to know exactly what the driving regulations are, we would always just say that you, you might be listening to this uh, episode in a couple of years' time when the driving regulations may have changed. So just important to just double check before your exam to make sure that you are up to date on the most recent guidance. But what, what the advice that we would give is just say, always just say you check the DVLA guidelines. And one thing Dr. Nisbet said last episode was she actually checks them in front of the patient just to make sure that, you know, that, that she is giving up to date advice. So we would just encourage the same um, of, of anyone who's sitting the PACES exam. It, it is helpful of, to always establish the patient's profession um, as this may Im- affect what type of license they have and particularly thinking about uh, HGV drivers who will have a category two license and unfortunately DVL restrictions are much more severe for people with that that category of license they're likely to have a restriction driving for at least five years 10 years if in the case of epilepsy so this is this, this is worth checking as it seizures in this patient often means a change in occupation is necessary yeah, definitely important as as uh, we did mention that at the start and then sort of forgot to come back to it. But yeah, definitely establishing their work and particularly HGV. But that, well, I think it also applies to things like bus drivers, taxi drivers and, and anything where you're sort of handling bigger, you know, more powerful machinery or, or vehicles. Yeah. And on that note, just thinking about the, 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 the patient's occupation, Sam. So if they work in a building site, if they work with they work with machinery, they work at heights, if they're a swimming instructor, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, these, these are all important potent, um, potential occupational risks patients with a history of seizures should probably not be exposed to. So you, you need to have a bit of a discussion with them about, about that. And, and, and if, I think if you're in any doubt that, that they may be at risk at their work or in something else that they commonly do, you really need to point them, point them in t- towards their own occupational health department for a risk assessment. And also if they are a patient with epilepsy, one of the epilepsy specialist nurses is, is uh, would be a really good point of contact to support them. Perfect. And and just to note as well, that although we've spoken a lot about the sort of history taking aspects of um, these patients, as and we're going to go on to the examination in a moment, but these sorts of issues could very easily come up in um, a communication type station in PACES, so a station four. I've also heard them come up in numerous ST3 interviews or issues related to that. You know, this this covers not just, you know, it's not specific to PACES. Obviously, it's important for our everyday practice as well. But in terms of your progression through your career, these sorts of issues and these sorts of difficult discussions will come up time and time again. And then, um, as we mentioned earlier, one of the things to ask about in the social history would be alcohol consumption, particularly alcohol uh, abuse as it's possible that alcohol withdrawal could just be the cause of the seizures, um, particularly in those patients who are alcohol dependent and are typically seen up to sort of um, 48 hours after they've had their last drink. So just important to ask about alcohol consumption and um, possible alcohol excess as well. So we're going to go on to the examination. So that sort of covers a lot of the things that we've spoken about in the history, but if you're going to do an examination, it's probably going to be in a station five where you've got a very short time to examine. The time pressure in the station five is is very, very tight with only eight minutes to conduct a history, do the examination and then explain the plan to the patients. What would you suggest, Hamish, would be the most um, easy 
um, to do in, in a short time frame um, where, where you've got that time pressure on, on you to demonstrate that you've got an understanding of the signs you would look for in a patient who's had a seizure? Yeah, thanks, Sam. I think if you if, if time is limited, perhaps in general inspection, what I would focus on would be having a good look at the mouth, uh, in the mouth for evidence of a, a lateral tongue bite around the head and neck for any obvious injury sustained. Perhaps also just quickly checking the shoulders if they've got any pain to make sure there's no evidence of a shoulder dislocation, which, which is possible in an epileptic seizure. And then perhaps um, just a, a focused neurological examination, looking for any obvious signs that perhaps may be associated with a, a space-occupying lesion that's not, not known about. So simple things you can do quickly would be pronator drift, visual fields to confrontation, quick assessment of tone and power in the limbs, as well as a, a brief assessment of gait. Perfect. And another thing just to mention would be that in, in a station five, in the sort of exam environment, often they would have actors in for a, a particular station like this. So you may not necessarily, I mean, it'd be very, very unlikely for you to find an actor who'd, you know, gone so method with their acting that they've bitten their own tongue to blend in with the with the case. But um, it's just important to mention that, you know, you may not necessarily find any particular signs, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't demonstrate the sorts of things that you would be looking for if a patient presents that way. So that covers most of the history and examination of a patient presenting with a suspected seizure. So we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about the differential diagnoses and the investigations and management of these patients. So as we discussed last episode, the main differential diagnoses that you'll want to present will mostly be the various causes of collapse that we discussed in our last episode. Those including neurally mediated syncope, cardiac causes or orthostatic. However, we have discussed features which should be able to reliably differentiate between a syncopal episode and a seizure, particularly a prodrome, which um, which sounds atypical for a vasovagal episode including deja vu, strange smells, or a possible trigger or precipitating event. And if witnesses have described the initial rigidity, followed by rhythmic shaking of both limbs during the episode and a post-ictal phase characterized by a prolonged recovery. So after establishing that this is a seizure and not a syncopal episode, you need to determine, or at least try to determine, the exact etiology. And this can be achieved by asking about the events leading up to the episode or the past medical history of the patient. But it might be the case that you don't find anything which specifically points to an exact cause. And Hamish, we've already discussed the various etiologies of seizures, which may be the causes in a patient who presents. So can you just run through those again for us and and what sort of things would be important to mention or at least try and discount as possible etiologies when you present back to the examiner? Yeah, so I would probably think in terms of a few broad categories, uh, sort of uh, almost a surgical sieve style of way of thinking about things. The first main category would would, would be uh, genetic. So this is this is this is overall the, the most common cause of epilepsy. Around twenty five percent of epilepsies will be genetic, and uh, particularly if you're seeing a, a younger patient. Then structural causes. So um, you know space occupying lesions. So new, new brain tumors, uh, trauma. So hemorrhage or uh, contusion, and then uh, cerebrovascular disease, which is actually the most common cause in the elderly. Infectious categories, so thinking of you know um, causes of meningitis, encephalitis, perhaps um, TB or malaria in the appropriate setting. Uh, thinking about HIV, which of course can can cause a primary CNS infection or um, predispose um, to other CNS, opportunistic CNS infections. 
metabolic causes, so um, uh, uremia, hepatic encephalopathy, and alcohol withdrawal, and then perhaps immune, immune types of causes, uh, so autoimmune encephalitis. Perfect. And I guess when you come around to your presentation, what would be important to mention is, you know, you can still mention any number of things within each of those categories, but then it's critical that you also give your reasoning behind why that may be likely or why that may not be likely. So, for example, you, you might mention that you've considered meningitis, but the patient doesn't have a fever, a headache or neck stiffness. So you can effectively rule that out. But we would still say it's important to mention that as a possible diagnosis or differential diagnosis. So if there's no obvious risk factors or pointers available, then it's possible that this could be epilepsy. And one of the first questions which you're likely to be asked is, how would you manage this patient if they presented on the acute take? So first of all, you start with the absolute basics. So baseline observations, particularly looking at temperature as a fever may be a marker of um, possible infections such as meningitis. In relation to a patient who's collapsed from another reason, a line standing blood pressure would be important to mention as well as um, uh, finger prick glucose which, as we mentioned previously, might trigger a seizure or hypoglycemia can predispose you um, to a seizure as well. In terms of routine blood tests, a full blood count and CRP, again, to look for markers of infection, renal function and full full, uh, range of electrolytes, as derangement in these can also predispose to seizures, and liver function tests would be important um, to look if there's any evidence of um, alcohol excess, which the patient may may not have admitted to at some point during the history. But then in um, the sort of further investigations, Hamish, what other things would you want to do beyond the sort of routine observations and routine blood tests? So I think in assuming that this is a patient with a, uh, a new presentation of seizures, some intracranial imaging is definitely warranted and uh, usually a CT head in the first instance to look for any potential cause of seizures. Now, I mean, if any abnormalities demonstrated on that CT head, the patient may go on to require an MRI. The approach may be slightly different if you were uh, in the outpatient setting, where you may plump straight for an MRI scan for the detail. Other diagnostic investigations, as well as neuroimaging, you're probably going to want to do an EEG or electroencephalogram. Now, you probably won't be expected to know exactly what to look for, but there are there there, there are certain patterns on EEG which can demonstrate that, that someone's got a, a predisposition or a, a, um, a liability towards seizures. And of course, uh, an EEG can also be helpful in, in, in diagnosing a, an acute seizure. Yeah. And I guess one of the things which is important is that you, you probably won't be expected to know exact, like the exact findings to look for to, that might suggest epilepsy. But what you might be expected to explain to the patient would be maybe what an EEG is and maybe just a description of the experience of, of having an EEG, i.e., you know, you're having probes stuck on your head, which mon- monitor your brain activity over, over a period of time. And, and it'll tell us if there's any indications of, of epilepsy. So you're not, look, you may not be expected to know the specific changes, but maybe a description of what an EEG involves. And the management, if the underlying cause is identified, i.e. If, if this is a provoked seizure due to any of the diagnoses we mentioned earlier, then managing those appropriately. So treating any infected process, uh, correcting abnormal electrolytes but importantly for a patient who potentially has a, a specific trigger for their seizures it'll be important to ask them to avoid obviously avoid that trigger Hamish when we see or when you see these patients on on an outpatient basis or if they're referred into you what are the important aspects of management in in these patients who have a possible seizure and these could be patients presenting to the GP or maybe to the emergency department 
the most important thing to say is probably that the, the, the you know anyone anyone with a with a first suspected seizure should be seen in a in a local first seizure clinic, and usually that would be within a couple of weeks of referral. In that clinic, they'll then they'll either have you know they, they'll largely have the investigations that we've discussed. They haven't already been carried out, and you know a decision at that point will, will, will be made as to whether this is this is a seizure or whether this was a uh, one of the differentials that, that that we've discussed in terms of management thereafter. Um, if this is a single seizure, normally if if the investigations are all normal. Uh, an anti anti-epileptic medication would not be started unless the patient went on to have a second seizure. They'd also be given just uh, all the uh, sort of uh, lifestyle and safety and driving advice that we've already discussed. Yeah, and and there are some. We I know we touched on it sort of very briefly earlier, Hamish, but the there are some sort of in terms of specifically giving advice to a patient who's had a seizure, and and I guess this would be where. If, for example, in a communication station, you have a patient who has a new diagnosis of epilepsy and you've been asked to convey the information indicating that they have epilepsy and then giving them advice based on keeping themselves safe and keeping others safe around them. What would you advise your your patients, Hamish, in terms of um, things to avoid? I know I know we've touched on them uh, a little bit earlier. I think importantly, Sam, they shouldn't be prevented from doing things that they enjoy, but but they do need to consider the, the risk to themselves and others from from activities that they may previously have not had to think about. So, particularly advising them that they that they shouldn't swim or bathe alone, but rather should should be accompanied by someone who's uh, who's who's competent uh, in in managing a seizure. So, someone who knows about their diagnosis. So, usually we 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 suggest patients take take showers rather than baths and uh, don't swim in in open water if they do swim in swim in a pool they swim somewhere where there's a, a lifeguard really in terms of other activities i think about uh, avoiding high level climbing particularly important if for instance their their uh, uh, their occupation involves something like being a roofer and also avoiding heavy machinery and then coming on to driving the as we mentioned earlier the usual advice we've given on the podcast is to just check the dvla guidelines just before your examination to make sure you're um, up to speed on the most recent developments. In in our view, we would always say that if you just mentioned to the examiners that you would check the DVLA guidelines, in our view, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be marking you down for that. But we do think you should know the common driving restrictions and look these up prior to you sitting your exam. And um, as Hamish mentioned earlier, for patients who've suffered a first seizure guidelines that you can't drive for six months, but if it's uh, an epileptic seizure, i.e. you've had um, more than one, uh, it's not a one-off, then it's one year um, of no driving. And if they want to reapply, they should be seizure-free for at least six months and on, and medicated for at least six months. Some other sorts of advice, particularly relating to um, pregnancy, because it's possible that the patient's presenting may be pregnant or in the sort of neonatal period after having a child. So what sort of specific advice would you give to a a, a pregnant lady who's maybe a new mother. Yeah, so um, there are you know there are quite a few different things that you might you might want to talk to them about. Um, in particular, if they're a new mum, you might want to think about breastfeeding and perhaps advising them to do this uh, on the floor or at least seated rather than standing. And when they're changing the baby, probably to do this on a floor mat rather than on a uh, changing table. Yeah, that was I thought that was an interesting point and probably something which at least it's, it's not my area of expertise, but I never would have considered. Um, something like that or giving that sort of advice but then I guess I, I don't do it maybe as often as, as you Hamish and then that sort of leads us into the next sort of bit of lifestyle advice for these patients which is it's perfectly possible and realistic that patients may ask about having children or 
how having epilepsy or taking anti-epileptic drugs may affect their contraception. So how, how might this affect the advice that you, you give them? Yeah, I, I think firstly, you know, it's, it's important to, to establish if a patient, patient wants to have children. You, we need to consider the effects of contraception can have on anti-epileptic medications. Um, a number of the AEDs are uh, hepatic enzyme inducers, including carbamazepine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, and uh, topiramate. And these can all affect the efficacy of the combined pill, as well as the progesterone-only pill, by increasing the synthesis of sex hormone binding globulin and reduced unbind progesterone. And these, uh, so you should advise patients to consider uh, barrier methods uh, of contraception, or at least a minimum a, a minimum dose of these pills. So is it, the, 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 there are like um, there are stronger pills you can get, I think. Yeah, yeah. If you use the combined pill, then there needs to be a, a minimum dose of estrogen within that pill, because I think it's the progestogen which is sort of affected by the enzyme induction. But the it's just important that the estrogen is at a sufficient level to provide that contraceptive effect. And how would that change your advice if the patient does want children in the near future? Um, so uh, I think firstly, you got to think about the um, preconception uh, counselling, which is absolutely essential because a number of anti-epileptic drugs uh, confer a risk of uh, harm to the baby. So in particular, thinking about uh, teratogenicity. So you'd want to try to get the patient on a medication and at the lowest dose to reduce this risk. As well as that, you're going to uh, there's there's good evidence that that reducing the total number of medications, so ideally monotherapy is safest for the unborn baby but of course you've got to balance this risk against the the risk of withdrawing any medications other important things the patient should be taking uh, folic acid uh, at least three months before the pregnancy to reduce the risk of neural tube defects and as i mentioned just earlier what specifically highlight is that we should be going with the anti-epileptic drug with the safest profile in pregnancy and lamotrigine and levetiracetam would both fit this profile in terms of medications to avoid, um, valparate uh, has a particularly high rate of condental malformations and neurodevelopmental delay. And uh, guidance in recent years from the uh, MHRA, all healthcare professionals should be following is that any woman of childbearing age should, should not be on sodium valparate and, unless there is no alternative option. If they are going to be on that drug, they need to be on something called the Pregnancy Prevent Programme. Finally, a topic that sometimes comes up is, is, is the monitoring of um, uh, plasma drug concentrations, which can fall particularly later in pregnancy in the third trimester and can sometimes require dose adjustment. Perfect. So just to summarise, the, the key ideas we want you to take away is that seizures can present in a very similar way to collapses, as we discussed in our last episode. However, there are a few critical differences in the prodrome the appearance of the patient during the episode and the recovery. And not only that, but the important factors in these patients include managing driving and occupation advice, and that seizures are a legitimate differential diagnosis for someone experiencing an episode of collapse. As we come towards the end of the episode, we are so grateful to Dr. Hamish Morrison, neurology registrar in the Seventenary, for giving up his time to discuss this important PACES case with us today. So Hamish, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sam, for having me on the show today. And if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do comment, like, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Prepaces Podcast or email us on prepacespodcast at gmail.com. I really hope this episode has helped you provoke some physiologically normal discharging of your neurons. Now it's time to take your metaphorical post period and take some rest 
but we will be sure to see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcasts. <laughs>